And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. DirecTV gives you access to apps like Netflix and live sports right next to each other. I don't get it. Let me put it in pigeon terms. It's like that one amazing dumpster with the old fruits and cardboard all in one place. How am I supposed to keep up with illustrative metaphors when you are making me so hungry? Get live TV and streaming apps together without a satellite. Visit directtv.com. Requires high-speed internet-connected Gemini device and separate paid subscription to watch Netflix on DirecTV. Terms and restrictions apply. The Athletic. I'm sorry, you can sit there and look and play with all your silly machines as much as you like. Is Gascoigne going to have a crack? He is, you know. Oh, I say! Brilliant! And tame, and tame again. Crank up the music, charge a glass. This nation is going to dance all night. Fictional football conversations rated out of 10, training ground bust-ups, ticket-touting priests, footballers on Gamesmaster, going to 90s nightclubs with Phil Babb, the state of footballers' socks, and excruciatingly polite Canadian soccer fans. These are the footballing loves and hates of Dominic Diamond. Brought to your ears by The Athletic, this is Football Clichés. Right now, you can subscribe to The Athletic for a special price of $3.99 a month for six months. That's 40% off the full price of a subscription. You'll enjoy great analysis and in-depth features from the very best football writers around, as well as ad-free versions of all of our podcasts. So go to theathletic.com forward slash clichés pod to take advantage of this special 40% discount. That's theathletic.com forward slash clichés pod. Hello everyone and welcome to episode 64 of the Football Clichés podcast. I'm Adam Hurry and with me, hopefully fresh from a triumphant Sunday league return, I hope, Charlie Eccleshire. Very much so. Back with a win and a goal. It was marvellous. Oh, oh yeah. in the script. Yeah, it was, and it was just so visualised. You know when I was saying that positive visualisation of yeah. Eccleshire, it's two, was exactly yeah. how it panned out. I scored oh, well, to put us 2-0 up. Talk me through the goal. So midfielder, he's actually looking for my teammate uh, who's kind of ran in behind. The ball nicks off the defender, drops around the penalty spot and I just, the keeper comes out and I just sort of hook it into the corner, wheel away, you know, sort of solid, playing down the celebration. But uh, yeah, we're 2-0 up and we go on to win 4-1 on a resplendent marshes. It was, it was magnificent. Just to clarify, when was this goal in the game, this second goal? Good question. Uh, about Roughly. 35 minutes. Oh, OK. Um, it's that sort of scenario that I want to talk about in a bit in, in part one. So um, keep that fresh in your mind. But alongside you, and these are words I don't think I could ever have comprehended saying in my life, but it's Dominic Diamond of Games Master fame. How are you? <laughs> I'm very good, Adam. Hello, Charlie. Thank you very much for uh, using that wonderful present past tense that all good players do when they yes, describe football goals. The ball falls to my feet, present tense, past tense. It's a wonderful mix. It's great. And I've hit it. It's like time travelling. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we, need to, we need to talk Games Master. We need to sketch out for people who may not understand the, just the concept of what Games Master is. If I could just paint a picture for people. We're talking 6.30pm on a weekday evening. 
We're talking barely concealed innuendo. We're talking increasingly absurd set designs. And we're talking about a guest list of that contains Linford Christie, East 17, Danny Bear, Prince Nazim Hamed, Mr. Motivator, Joe Guest, Wickfield, Natalie Imbruglia, and PJ and Duncan. <laughs> Dominic, was this the absolute essence of 1990s UK television? Yeah, I think it was. Uh, I think if you look at the people who were there, I think uh, it was a who's who of 90s glitterati. Um, I also think that the, uh, the the totems that we ended up representing, you know, boys, bants, I think, is that what they call it now? Bants, I hear? They do now, uh, I yeah. think we invented bants. Yeah, <laughs> and, um, you know, a, a certain laddishness that I'm not necessarily uh, quite so proud of now because I have uh, mm. the two most woke daughters in the world and they absolutely <laughs> destroy me on a daily basis. Uh, so, uh, so, yeah, and then, you know, we also... We're lucky to to start at the same time as we had that that massive wave of uh, video game consoles, the Mega Drive and the Nintendo, and which again is quintessentially '90s. So uh, yeah, I'm, I'm probably as '90s as you can get without appearing in the Blur Country House video. <laughs> okay, um, that's the benchmark that we should all be reaching. Um, we had um, this yes. was the stand. This was kind of the standout listener feedback when we um, hinted at who was being on the show today. Uh, Addy Dassler, WSAG, very unwieldy username, but he said, Dominic Diamond was class, very much the James Richardson of the gaming world. Um, which is, quite, now I think about it, it's quite a nice way of summing it up. Yeah, because he was doing Football Italia at the same time on uh, on Channel 4. And yeah. we were very lucky that um, we were part of a wave of television then, which included The Word, really, which was the one that yeah. started it all off. The Word, The Big Breakfast, TFI Friday, Euro Trash, uh, Football Italia, that, that were doing stuff that was genuinely different. And in the case of like us and The Word and, and Euro Trash, you genuinely did not know what was going to come next as yeah. a viewer and a fan. And I don't think that any TV channel in any era in UK TV has managed to kind of have that fecundity and mm. uh, an anarch anarchic fecundity, I think is a great name for it, that I've just <laughs> just made up that phrase. And, and um, so, yeah, we were very, very lucky at that time. And, it, and it's certainly not like that these days. Extending that kind of image of you as the kind of um, video gaming James Richardson, I, I feel like you should have presented one episode sitting on a park bench with a can of tab clear reading a copy of Mean Machines. I think that would have really kind of rounded the thing off. Um, but yeah, now, now I think about it. Mid-90s Channel 4, the real golden era. It's like it's like England at Euro 2004. It's just right. Yeah, yeah it was. And also and also in terms of, uh, of football as well, I mean, Euro 96 really was the was the kind of, was peak 90s as well. That, that, as, a, that as a tournament was... Uh, was absolutely fantastic, and again, it wasn't just it wasn't just video games boom. It wasn't just TV. It wasn't just uh, you know kind of the explosion of interest in, in football with Euro '96. Also, music as well. It was an absolutely incredible, uh, incredible kind of peak creative time to be part of, and I certainly uh, surfed surfed that wave on and off screen. Yes, so I read. Um, yeah, England Scotland might be a running theme during this episode, so we will revisit that shortly. But. <laughs> First of all, you can join us for what is known as the adjudication panel. Let's do this. Now, Charlie, I've been an avid watcher of Line of Duty, of course, the latest series. Um, one moment from episode Don't spoil two. it for me. No, I won't. This, this, I promise this won't spoil it. Um, this moment from episode okay. two, Charlie, um, was a fascinating case study in fictional football small talk. Uh, between us, I want to kind of rate this out of 10 if we can. Cue the clip. 
Nice TV. Champions League games on later. Not that you lot have got an interest. Next season. Now, I didn't know you'd bother with the sports channels. What comes in the package? Cheapest chips. Right. <laughs> I mean, bearing in mind that, you know, you know, a scriptwriter's got a big job here. They can't go too specific. It has to be reasonably timeless. How are you rating this, Charlie? A few a few things jump out. You lot is yep. uh, that's commonly used. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of um, catch-all, isn't it? It's sort of sufficiently vague. There's the sort of light banter element, the kind of prodding of one another. <laughs> the, I mean, I do have a question about the... I want to find that package where the sports channels are included because I'm paying yeah. a lot extra <laughs> to get them on top. So that that to me seems like a bit of a red flag. The Champions League, uh, Champions League's games on later. No one says that. Nobody would say that. I don't. Yeah, it, it's a weird combination of being both too vague and too specific because I think if you, why wouldn't why wouldn't you just say what the game was to, to, to just say the competition feels funny though it's better than a friend of mine who doesn't really follow football once asking me about the UEFA Champions League which oh. I thought was a sort of jarring full name that only sponsored by Mastercard <laughs> yeah yeah you watch right. the Mastercard UEFA Champions League yeah. but yeah it's certainly not as bad as some and I um yeah the 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 next season interesting that that little bit at the end the the, the kind of ending to that banter Dominic uh, made me wonder who do we think D.I. Steve Arnott supports just based on that little section alone. Well, it's it's funny that you ask that because I was on a, a, a very hardcore, um, salty-languaged Irish uh, Celtic podcast at the weekend <laughs> and I was getting fired right into Martin Compton for being one of these latter-day glory-hunting celebrity <laughs> Celtic fans who, yeah. unlike me, did not stick their head above the parapet in the 90s when yeah. we were winning nothing. So I, I can't look at him without thinking that he's a Celtic fan in spite of that Cockney accent. Um, but what what I found interesting talking about accents was that thing that the minute a character is a scouser, they have to like football. And this yeah. goes back to that wonderful cracker um, series with Robert Carlyle yeah. playing the Liverpool fan who was really upset about Hillsborough which was incredibly powerful and that's a real TV trope a scouser has to like football Absolutely. and I'm just glad that she has she has a proper um, official legal uh, television sports package and she yeah. wasn't watching some dodgy feed on one soccer or whatever that would have been more with all authentic. those pop-ups offering you yeah offering Russian mail order brides like they <laughs> tend to do to me for some reason I don't know why I'm happily married <laughs> It's time for popular culture to embrace illegal football streaming uh, in script writing, definitely. But, um, I mean, I, I got very curious about this, Charlie, and I asked our listeners who they think Steve Arnott's character actually supports. Um, let's, let's race through this. Paul Gallagher says Crystal Palace. Doesn't quite fit the Champions League theme for me. Charlie Morgan says Cambridge United even further away. That's no good. Nifty <laughs> Palm says Brighton. Perhaps it's the waistcoat. So now we're getting into the real nitty gritty of it. Um, I mean, which... I think West Ham. West Ham um, was, was what jumped out at me. And that would figure with the next season, um, oh, given oh, that they are... Oh, it does you know, now. They're cur- yeah, they are currently in the top four. Yeah, Jamie Parkins agrees with you. She says Steve Arnott supports West Ham all day long. Elliot Sweeney says Arnott is probably a Charlton fan, but admits he doesn't follow them as much as he did when he was younger. <laughs> Dan Carney says I'm going for Spurs or Arsenal due to the Champions League bants with Steph. Yes, good logic again. Brandon, Steve Arnott definitely supports Spurs and there's no debating it. Tom says Steve is definitely a Spurs fan with a soft spot for Crawley. He also says for my sins every time he asks who he supports. 
<laughs> this is I love this detail. Um, Dominic, this is perhaps the defining answer from Jack Pierce. Arn stinks of Spurs. His dad actually knew Steve Perryman <laughs> back in the day, so that he and Steve have had odd days in a corporate box. Normally third or fourth round cup games, but still a novelty and a good day out. Only been to the new stadium once, didn't like it. And he, he wouldn't be able to fight. He's never been in that wonderful pub no. that was at the end of uh, of White Hart Lane that uh, Teddy Sheringham and his more colourful affiliates used to hang out in, oh, which really? I was lucky enough to sit at the table with back, back in the glorious days. Yeah, he knew he knew some top characters, Teddy did. Top North I, uh, London faces. I, um, I speed read your autobiography this morning and uh, I picked out some great nuggets um, vaguely related to that sort of thing. So we're definitely going to get into that later. Um, finally, Rob Gilbert says, Arnold is a Spurs fan, Londoner who when bantering with that Scouse lady reveals his team on in the Champions League this season but hopefully next year I'm willing to die on this hill so I think we have I think we all agree he's, he, Charlie I think he is he, very Spurs There's he could be slightly Spurs. Spurs about him very earnest probably would do like a six tweet thread after after they sort of draw 1-1 at home to Newcastle <laughs> saying that's it I'm done here we're not moving forward as a team Steve Arnott is definitely Mourinho out uh, <laughs> yes. he, in Steve Arnott's view Mourinho doesn't understand the club it's traditions. You know, he, Steve Arnott just wants someone back who's going to get them playing good football at the very least. Well, yeah, I, th- I, I'm, I think there's a slight, there's, there's a kind of um, a cockiness about Mourinho that Steve Arnott would not like because it would remind him yes. of uh, all those interviews with criminals who thought they were just a bit too clever. Yes. So there'd be a little bit of, um, <laughs> uh, there'd be a bit of a trigger there, I think, with um, criminal masterminds and, and Mourinho for Arnott. So it would never, you're right, Mourinho would never sit well with him after a while. I think you're bang right. I think you're bang right. Okay, moving on uh, in the adjudication panel. Charlie, this is a very subtle one. Uh, We might need to do some serious digging here, but it does relate to the second goal you scored on Sunday, albeit a little bit too early for this scenario. Um, I've I've got slightly fascinated with um, goals that are scored to make it kind of 2-0 or 3-1, essentially deciding the game towards the end of the second half. Not, Not necessarily late, maybe hour mark onwards. Um, so now you've got that picture in your head and you're a co-commentator, what are you saying? Or what, how are you kind of summing up the situation? I scored a goal that might just put this to bed. Yeah, you're, on, you're, on, you're in the kind of the ballpark. What I'm talking about, and I, I, it, I'm just fascinated by the phrasing of it generally, is that um, it's a goal and then they say sort of, and that, that should be is that. that. And that. And that is that. Okay, so the basis of the phrase is, and that is that. We all know what that means. That mm-hmm. is, we have we have killed the situation. That is done. But for some reason, they can't ever say it in that basic way. You have to kind of caveat it with about a thousand things in the middle. And that, you would have to say, in all likelihood, probably, <laughs> is that. Yeah, that's a, that should be that, I think. If you, if you want to... Um cover yourself in slightly fewer words and that should be that yes. um, oh do you think do you think that's what they're doing they think they're sort of covering themselves for any late drama I think so yeah because it's not you know it's not fully done because obviously 2-0 is a dangerous lead but it should be and, and and that I think is that that means you're saying I'm not saying that absolutely will be but if they've got anything about them you've got to say that should be that yeah, Dominic. Apologies. This is the sort of pedantry that you have stepped into. No, this this is good. I I, I love that 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 microcosmic examination of the words, yes. and it's interesting because that thing about two 0 being a dangerous lead. I think that was brought in precisely to offer an alternative to the that is that because I've never, I never I I never see the logic in two 0 being a dangerous lead. It's not. It's actually 
twice as uh, less dangerous than Wondell. It really is. It's not dangerous at all. It's actually quite comfortable. I guess the theory is, is that then if they pull one back, the momentum swings their way. But I would like to see the statistics of... 2-0 leads that have been blown over the years. And I, I'm prepared to go out on a limb to say there's more teams have ended up winning a match being ahead by two goals than have ended up losing it. Statistically, you're almost certainly correct. But this, the fact is that a lot of football discourse is based on just sheer anxiety that something terrible is about to happen. So I think that's purely the genesis of this. So, uh, but yeah, I just I just want to get that off my chest, guys. And I'm, I'm, I'm glad I did. Mm. Um, moving on to uh, slightly more entertaining territory. Um, Charlie, you will enjoy this. This is why I kept it hidden from you in the running order. Mm. Um uh, we all remember fondly Andy Gray's pretend conversations between strikers and goalkeepers um, when goals happened. Uh, Gary Neville uh, actually kind of um, brought it back in sort of slightly half-glorious fashion in the Liverpool-Arsenal game the other day. Let's hear it. That little bit of a slowing down from Salah is perfect. He encouraged you. Are you going to tackle me? He says to Gabriel, are you going to tackle me? Are you going to tackle me? No, you're not. OK, well, I'll score then. Does, yes. It's not as good, is it? I mean, I, that out of 10. I thought of you, Adam, when I watched this on Saturday. It was exactly that. It was the go on, go on, you're going to attack me. And then on Sunday, we scored a goal similar. And I sort of made that comment after, didn't give any context. And it really didn't didn't land. I don't think there were enough sort of, uh, you know, it's a younger team these days. There weren't enough Andy Gray ultras there. Um, but yeah, it was exactly that. It was a real harking back. Yeah, he just, he just doesn't really throw himself into it. And Dominic, you know, of the previous 63 episodes of this podcast, I reckon in about 48 of them, we have lamented, well, not lamented, we've celebrated the fact that the Scottish accent really does lend itself to football commentary. So finally, we've got a Scotsman on here to corroborate this. It's Do you know what's interesting about that, about the striker talking to the goalkeeper? Is um, it actually, I, I'm surprised more goalkeepers don't do it to strikers in real life to put them off I, when I was uh, I <laughs> used to when I lived in Nova Scotia uh, when oh, yeah. I lived in Nova Scotia Canada I ran a, a, a five a side night um, for the more mature gentleman called Dad Ball and there was a wonderful nice. goalkeeper uh, called Anthony Prophet massive big English guy and, and I played up front and I was an okay player and I could never score against him because he literally whenever I had the ball he would do that thing he, was, he would shout miss Oh. And I would. And it was just so juvenile and it's so frustrating. So I'm surprised. I don't know if that f- would fall under unsportsmanlike conduct. I but think I would it think does. if I was a goalkeeper, well, you know, but, but you can flap your hands at a penalty that's and true. everything, can't you? You mm. can jump up and down on the spot. I mean, that's, that's, that's a physical version of saying miss, mm. you know, isn't it? Especially roared in a Scottish accent from a Scottish goalkeeper. Maybe if Alan Ruff had done that, he wouldn't be synonymous with goalkeeping tragedy uh, uh, like sim- he is. Simply shouting miss at a striker, Charlie, has slightly Yuri Geller vibes for me. Yeah, I'm, I'm amazed that was so successful. A real, <laughs> a real insight into the diamond psyche. But uh, I guess in, in the moment, and if you've got someone screaming, maybe it's more terrifying than it sounds. Uh, only in the process of saying Yuri Geller did I realise that he actually caused um, Gary McAllister to miss his penalty against England in 1996, which I'm just really happy to drop in, Dominic. Well, it's interesting for two reasons. One, because Yuri Geller was, uh, was on Games Master as a guest, and I was never a believer in uh, in his thing, but he, he actually did one of his Yuri Geller mind things on me, and it honestly, genuinely 
percent work. Was he just shouting and, and missile? I you? was. He was, yes. And then fortunately, applied to the rest of my career. Oh. Um, so, uh, so, so what? Uh, so I was there. I was at Wembley. I was in line with of that penalty were. spot. Of course, you were. Uh, when Gary McAllister took it. How could Dominic and Diamond not get a ticket for England Scotland at Euro '96? <laughs> And, um, and it was the most heartbreaking uh, moment of my life um, when Gaza went up and scored. And actually, I had arranged uh, later on that evening to meet a whole bunch of uh, my English friends. And I didn't. I just went right home to my little flat in Notting Hill and I, sh- I shut the door, unplugged the phone and I was weeping. I'm not ashamed to admit it. I was, I was crying as a grown man. And, uh, and there's knocks on my door and I'm just ignoring it. And the next morning I wake up and someone with a Sharpie had put 2 nil. On my uh, on oh, my door. As simple as that. As blunt as that. <laughs> yeah, just the scorelines. That's nice. Yeah. Simpler yeah, times. That was it. <laughs> you, you, it they was. would have written nonce or something in 2021, but no, no, simpler times. <laughs> Probably, yeah. The final part of the adjudication panel, uh, if it does make the final edit, Dave. Um, Charlie, fascinating example this week of the kind of sheer intransigence sometimes of the language of football. Um, it was the story that uh, Antonio Rudiger and Kepa Aretha Balaga had something of a disagreement at Chelsea training, and it was universally described as a bust-up. And um, and it, and when I say universally, I mean everywhere. Mandatory use of the term bust-up, which uh, and it, and it elicited two immediate reactions for me. First of all, bust-up sounds like a phrase that should only have been used in the nineteen twenties or something like that. And secondly, it felt like everyone who used it physically could not comprehend another phrase to use. I'm not criticising anyone. I know I embrace the the consistency of the language of football more more than anybody else, but I just I, I have a weird fascination with this. Do you think it's just that it's so broad? I mean, where does a bust up start and a bust up end? Like it yeah, feels it, like it can cover a huge amount. And training ground, it is almost like the muscle memory. You say training ground, you kind of just <laughs> yes. bust ups, just kind of yeah, yeah, fighting definitely. to get out. So you think it's like could be actually like a legal requirement? You keep the lawyers happy. Say bust up. You've probably covered a few areas here. You haven't suggested it was World War Three. That sort of thing. Yeah, exactly. It's it's a it's a catch all that if if you're in doubt, as some probably were, bust up. Yeah, that's fine. It'll do. I think that's where we can learn a bit from the world of rugby, uh, because uh, rugby would call it a stromash. Oh yeah. And a stromash is one of those great words that's always used in rugby commentary, mm. but never you never have a stromash in football. At all, I can't remember one time I've ever heard that. You get it in Scottish football for like a goal mouth scramble. I think that's the that's the equivalent of a goal mouth scramble, isn't it? A stramash. Yeah, but I, th- I, I think there's almost some kind of unwritten rule among Scottish football commentators that they don't use that word, that that is actually mm. falls under rugby union's purview. And they're oh, always okay. a bit scared because obviously rugby union is the establishment in Scotland. Yeah, so it's totally. almost like they, they've kind of let let the working classes have a certain bag of words and we're not allowed <laughs> to kind of cross over <laughs> into the likes of, of Stromage. But yeah, but bust up is, is wholly inadequate. I remember, um, what was what it was uh, Craig Bellamy, um, whose head did he nearly kick off? In a in a, tra- in, a oh. in a training ground bust up. Um. Oh no! Craig Bellamy was the golf club oh, against yeah, John, with John Arnarisa, Arnarisa. and it was John Hartson who nearly kicked off Ayo Berkovich's head. Oh, Ayo Berkovich! That was—I knew it was one striker who ended up playing for Celtic. That's right, Hartson Ayo Berkovich. West Ham Celtic, yeah, it'll blend yeah. That's well. not. Was it Scott Sinclair? <laughs> that's not a bust up. <laughs> That's that's not a bust stop. No, I mean that's right. a decapitation. Yeah, that yeah. Really is, you know? Anyone describing that as a bust stop, yeah, is massively underplaying yeah, what happened exactly, there. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Truly the best 
training ground uh, fracas slash confrontation I've ever seen. It was the connection, Dominic, with with the boot to head that I find really impressive. <laughs> it was. <laughs> it is. It is. I feel like we've, we've, we have nailed part one, but part two is going to be something else entirely. Live, all the way from what I like to think of as big Scotland, but other people call Canada, it's Dominic Diamond with his <laughs> Mesut Harland dicks. Dominic, I'm I'm going to leave it to you to introduce each of them in the in the order that that you gave them to me because they it really is a lovely cross section of uh, the consumption of football. So let's let's hear your first one, please. Yeah, I, I love seeing uh, members of the clergy uh, a football <laughs> match. It can be any religious denomination. Yes, I, I felt that as a Celtic fan, you, you were you were always seeing uh, there was always a priest somewhere in the crowd, and. I mean, it's it's part of the kind of club's beliefs that at one point Celtic actually let priests in for free, which I thought was a lovely touch. Oh, it's a, a nice, a great touch. nod, classy to, to touch. Its, yeah. yeah, to its kind of uh, to its Irish Catholic roots, and um, so it's a it's a great community thing because the the priest is the most important member of that community for Celtic fans. But also, I think, I mean, why not? Why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't any football club let? Any form of religious denomination influencer in for free because we all know as football fans that our club needs every help it can get. And we know that football, more than any other sport, is one where the gods laugh at us. You know, it's 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 football more than any sport that gave us giant killers, something that makes absolutely no inherent sense. You know, it's why it's why Celtic didn't just fail to win 10 in a row this year, but fail so spectacularly that in 100 years, it'll be comparable to Greg Norman choking at the Masters or, you know, the Falcons in Super Bowl 51. So I'm surprised that all clubs (laughs) don't have a whatever God you wish to, because as fans, we do it. It's it's Mm. amazing how religious fans get. The only time people pray Mm. is like when you're, you know, two one up with with five minutes to go. So I thought that was... uh, I thought that was lovely. And also, if they had it today, I was trying to work out. I don't know how they would check other than the outfit that you were wearing. And would it be cheaper to buy a priest's outfit from a pop-up <laughs> Halloween store than buying a ticket to a football match <laughs> these days? It probably, it probably would. would be. Because your... I, I think you, you don't really want... You don't really want to question a priest as well. It's one of those dodgy things. It's like, yeah. oh, you, you feel a bit guilty. So I think, I, I think if they did You're have going straight it today, to hell if you do that. Clubs, yeah, yeah. I, I think you would look out and you would see like ninety percent of the crowd would be dressed in black with a white collar. It would be quite an arresting visual. Well, that's it. You could only, you could only be one or two of you, like like two priests going to a game. I don't think you wouldn't get like a stag do's worth yeah. of priests going to one game. But no. my first question, first question that came to mind when you mentioned this was how does sort of if you saw a priest around sort of Celtic Park, like how would fans kind of interact with him? Would there be kind of this kind of sort of sort of awestruck kind of like, wow, the gravity of the situation has really dawned on me. Yeah, I thought well, there'd certainly be a respect. Um, mm. I don't think they'd be, you know, running up and rubbing their hair or giving them a going, dead arm, my son, or however <laughs> they might behave, you know, at West yes. Ham. It's, it's, you know, so um, no, there would there would definitely be a be a a, a, a deference. Uh, 
I mean, but that said, most Scottish Catholic priests are real characters. Anyway, my one that I had in Glasgow uh, was was absolutely brilliant. Uh, Father John uh, Gannon, who ended up marrying my wife and I. And so there was once we've, we've just had Easter and we have the Easter vigil, which mm-hmm. is the uh, the Champions League of uh, of Catholic masses, <laughs> in that it lasts about six hours. I mean, it's like a hundred readings, a hundred sermons, and everything. And it um, it yeah. starts at like uh, sponsored you know, by Gazprom. Yes. It starts at sunset and goes for six, seven hours. And Father John would say to us, listen, I don't want to have to sit through all these lessons from the Bible. You don't want to sit through all these lessons from the Bible. So instead of the full lot, we'll just do three. And so there's a certain practicality, which uh, what the working class football fan respects in Glasgow uh, with a priest. So there would be, there'd be deference, but the priests would be, you know, they would just come across like normal uh, football fans. I once, like, there was once, um, and this might strike you as extremely unpriest-like behaviour. Yes. So when Celtic played... Uh, Barcelona in uh, 2004, yeah, 2004, and I was over at that game with my wife. It was the first away European game I'd taken her to, and we had a wonderful uh, day, and we were drinking on the Ramblers, and we were absolutely hammered, and uh, we got up to the ground. It was about 30 minutes before kickoff, and I do that horrible thing where I reach in my pocket, and I haven't got the tickets. Mm. And I'm like, oh no, they're back in the hotel. And my wife is just like, you absolute idiot. And I'm like, okay, right. Just, and it's difficult because my wife, uh, my wife doesn't run. She doesn't get rushed at all. Right. We're complete opposites. I'm very manic. She's just serene and posh and English from Kent. So she's just yep. like, well, I don't run. And I'm like, oh <laughs> no. I said, right, so you stay here. I'm going to run back to the hotel. We'll probably miss the first half, but you know, it'll be okay. And I'm sprinting down and I stop at this traffic lights. And um, and there's a priest standing there, and he's holding up two tickets. He's selling two spare tickets for <laughs> Barcelona Celtic. And I'm like, hello, Father. And he's like, oh, Dominic Diamond. And I'm like, yeah, he said, Games Master, which again makes it incredibly surreal. And I said, what's the deal with the tickets? And he, and he said, two of my brothers couldn't make it. So I'm like, Oh, this really is a gift from God. Oh and God. I said, I said, how much? And this is what's brilliant. And he said, <laughs> well, seeing as it's you, face value. And oh, I thought, what? so he was trying to scalp them for a profit. <laughs> brilliant. <laughs> um, so, so, so he, he gave me these, these two tickets. And if, if that wasn't a miracle enough, so I go back and I see my wife. We get in, a couple of minutes to spare. We sit down, match kicks off. And I feel a tap on my shoulder after a while. And I turn round and it's this guy called Romano Petrucci who was responsible for me being a Celtic fan in the first place. When I was 16 right. years old, he had yeah. a cafe and a nightclub in Stranraer. He was the most glamorous guy. He was my absolute hero. And without him, I wouldn't be a Celtic fan. He, he, he was, I, I lost touch with him over the years. I hadn't spoken to him for about 10 years. He was sitting behind us. So we'd, <laughs> I'd never have seen him. I'd never got in touch with him again if it wasn't for this priest and these couple of tickets. And it it was almost. It was such a wonderful miracle. It was almost worth the fact that uh, worth the fact that I went for a pee and missed John Hartson equalising, which is the last time I ever ever went for a pee during a football <laughs> match. Now I'll just go in my pants because I think that's, yes. that that was just that was God paying me back there. Going really, I've given you this and you're going to go for a pee during the game. I'll show you John Hartson against Barcelona. When are you going to see that again? Never doubt John Hartson's ability to score against Barcelona at the New Camp. Surely, um, I just realised. 
realising this sort of parallel universe in which if none of this had happened and all those tickets had gone to their rightful owners, four priests would have been sat um, next to each other. So breaking our limit already. So it can happen. It can happen. Worth doing. Anyone who there who needs a ticket for a game, dress up as a priest. This is, this is a fantastic start. Dominic, tell me about your second love of football, which is uh, it's also related to going to a game. Opportunistic local kids who fleece you for money in and around uh, football matches. It's a bit of an unwieldy title, but, um, and I, I really don't know if this happens at other grounds other than Celtic, but there's something about kids who grow up beside football grounds. They're never the, the most affluent of kids because football grounds tend to be in working class areas. So these kids are natural grifters. You know, yes. they, they need to seize mm. on opportunities that life has not naturally given them uh, as a result of their birthright. So they all become wee gangster hustlers. <laughs> and you'd get them around Celtic Park who would literally nick a scarf off someone walking in, hand it to a pal, and that pal would sell it to someone else walking in 20 feet behind them, and it would just be all over in 30 seconds. Now, you know, some people might say that's a horrible crime, but for me, it's Glasgow's Ocean's Eleven, right? So I think it's, it's perfectly okay. The great and, heist. And it is. But because um, because the, the working class kids and, and working class people have the best sense of humour, they do it with a certain swagger and a certain cheek. And I don't know, uh, again, I don't know if this happens at other grounds, but they used to be, before they did up the Celtic Way a few years ago, you used to park on just this massive kind of urban wasteland field. And within seconds of parking, you'd be surrounded. There'd be like a gang of, of crop-haired kids who would descend upon you from nowhere, like a combination of biblical locusts and the, the shopkeeper from Mr. Ben. And um, <laughs> and they would say that, they would say the same thing. They would say, what's your car for a pound, Mr.? So the idea was that if you partake of one one golden coin, they would guard your car. <laughs> and what was great about that was the inference was they would guard it from themselves. So it was a it was a bona fide protection racket run by feral ten year old kids, and it, it was quite scary. Um, and so, but they used to do, and you would you would hand over a pound every single time. There was one guy, and this is probably an urban myth, but the story goes that there was one guy <laughs> who got sick of handing a pound over to these little kids every day, right, every, every game. And so he bought a Rottweiler and he, he took that in his car to the football. Yeah. And so uh, next time he passes, he's got this vicious looking dog in the back and these kids go, what's your car for a pound, mister? And he's <laughs> like, oh no, that's all right. The, 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 the dog can watch, watch the car. And the kid goes, What's he like at putting out fires? Yeah, oh, Christ. Uh, um, brilliant, absolutely brilliant. This feels like this feels like the preserve of, of sort of either northern English towns like Liverpool or Manchester, Charlie, or as it turns out, Glasgow as well. But it makes me wonder. This probably, Charlie, this is probably one of the industries that were hardest hit by behind closed doors football. Like, where's their income coming from now? That's true, actually. We need to do an athletic long read on the kind of lost, what's happened to those kids yeah. dur during the pandemic and, you know, will they come back? I also, I wonder, it sounds like these kids might go on to become priests someday, given the kind of touting <laughs> story from Barcelona. I mean, this it feels like that's the kind of natural next step. Um, but like Dominic, there's there's a kind of rock solid code of honour here. I mean, sort of a slight sort of tacit agreement straight away that 
that your car will be all right if you hand over the cash. Like there will be no kind of double crossing yeah. going on. Listen, uh, I mean, to, to give these kids their due, they, uh, they, you know, they did as as I understood the contract was. At no point was my car assaulted in any way. <laughs> Which again, you think it's quite remarkable because all it takes is two gangs of kids for this to yeah. descend into complete chaos <laughs> yeah, exactly. and for every car to get absolutely yeah. scratched. So again, I don't know if this was just one vast uh, empire run by a Fagan-esque character in the shadows, <laughs> or if maybe it was it was like Baltimore Street Corners in The Wire that it was actually geographically marked out. Well, this is the this thing. I, was like, I mean, you presented it as this kind of quite slightly um, rough around the edges, anarchic kind of situation. But what are the logistics of this? Is it one child per car? Does one patrol like the... How does it work? What's the manpower involved? How no. far does that pound stretch? No, the, no I think the, the way that the way it seemed to be the most regular was there would be the smaller, younger child would ask you for the money. There'd yep. be an older, slightly larger child behind him. It's a pyramid scheme, Dominic. age. <laughs> <laughs> where that older child could be anything from 10 to, given the rate of alcohol fetal syndrome in Glasgow, could be 40. I mean, you really just, you know, that's, that was the, that's the danger of it. You never really quite knew. So I thought that was quite, that was quite interesting. But I guess, well, with those two gangs, it's almost mutually assured destruction. It's a form of like nuclear deterrence where they don't really, you know, it's in everyone's interest that no, no, no one's cars get yeah, damaged. Exactly. Yeah. And I also, I was thinking, Dominic, when you said that one, the Rottweiler guy, I thought you were going to say that he was so sick of doing it doing the dance each game he proposed doing a kind of season ticket system whereby at the start of the season just handed over a 20 or something it was like look rather than going through this pound every game can i just get a sort of you know cover me for the season <laughs> like a book uh, of tickets maybe, like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, maybe at a discounted rate something to think about when these kids come back really clever idea yeah it definitely is. i I'm going to start uh, making my firstborn and uh, consider this as a genuine career option. Uh, doesn't happen in London, I'm, I'm convinced, so we'll see how it goes. Dominic, tell us about your third um, rather niche in uh, love of football. Yeah, this is a completely different thing. And it's only something that I came to realise recently, thanks to Twitter and thanks to the fact that they started posting them, is the oversized uh, fact sheets that commentators use for football. I, I, I always right. used to think innocently that they just, that, you know, they knew all their stuff but then I saw um, I think it might have even been Arlo White was the first one that I saw post his and it was just amazing so much research in in such a tiny space it's it's incredible I'm I'm addicted I over prepare for things right I've always been that over preparer uh, like uh, you know if I if I was going to do an interview on on the radio I remember um, I remember when I was uh, interviewing Roger Waters for Q107 Toronto and it was supposed to be a 15 minute interview I had seven pages of A4 <laughs> of notes so I, I I'm ridiculous like that and um, but how they managed to cram it down also reminds me when you used to when you had your A-levels at school and you had like your maths notes or your history notes on your little cards you would cram it in and I never could I had such terrible doctor's handwriting but these things are just are, are, are works of beauty there is a Pinterest because there's two there's, there's kind of two <laughs> styles right there's yep. There's the ones that are typed, which are not the same. Now, Guy Mowbray had this featured in an article, and it was typed. And I'm like, okay, well, that's okay. But there's a Pinterest site dedicated to the ones by BBC Newcastle's Nick Barnes, who actually does his A, handwritten, different Mm. coloured felt-tip pens in a ring-binded jotter with not so much as one mistake. 
And it's almost, I mean, it's witchcraft. It really is. Yes. It's like, yeah, it really and, is. and I love that. And I think it's, I think it's necessary because the football commentator is the pilot of the plane, and mm-hmm. uh, and you don't want to get into a plane if a pilot hasn't got his checklist. So true, I feel true. reassured knowing that a commentator has his checklist and. The the interest so so the two styles the handwritten ones which is much preferable the handwritten ones for me are like the tennis players using a wooden racket it's just an extra <laughs> bit of class yes. in there it just says I've got I've got the skills yeah. I don't need the carbon assistance you know um, and it's interesting because Arlo Guthrie who, who was the first one I saw he has a kind of mix of the two that he has typewritten bits about players but they seem to be cut out and stuck on a giant piece of cardboard right. with his own little hand felt tip round them and notes like it's a school project. <laughs> did he burn, it, did he burn it in the oven the night before to make it look a bit older? <laughs> did his mum and dad it. help him in the end? And I, and I love it because I am, Arlo White is my kind of commentator of, of choice over here on the North American continent because he does the NBC stuff. And I think him and... Um, and Lee Dixon are the greatest commentary pair. They're just mm. wonderful. So uh, I, I think it just... And there's something about Arlo White that's that's slightly uh, Alan Partridge. Yeah. And I think he knows it and he plays off it. Yes, and I think does. his commentary sheet is a bit Alan Partridge as well. It's just slightly too big, you know, that it should be slightly too unwieldy. But they're wonderful works of art. I would actually... I'd buy one's framed. Clyde Tilsley sells does he? commentary notes oh, in, in a frame. I've got to get For one of any them. game I'm, you want. Got he will do it for you because his brilliant, handwriting is brilliant. his handwriting is genuinely incredible it's sort of really kind of um satisfying capital letters all up it's all uppercase yeah. and, and red and blue and it's just utterly wonderful but charlie i mean commentators have been have been doing this for for quite a while they've been preparing their notes like this for for what seems like quite a long time but it's only kind of recently that they've become kind of popular culture they've sort of people started noticing them it's a bit like and excuse the worst metaphor in the world here, but it's a bit like um, cuts of meat that were no that used to be kind of considered really cheap and no one used to have anymore, and now suddenly decided to be quite on vogue. So mm-hmm. I, 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 I sort of Clive Tilsey's commodified commentary notes are a bit like ox cheeks now. Like we're all suddenly massively <laughs> impressed by them. I think, yeah, Dominic, you touched on it. There, there is that kind of um, analogy thing that is in this digital world is just really appealing, and yeah. and and like you're right as well. It does to me. Like I used to with my revision notes things, and I'd color code them all and lots of different things. But eight, you know, you want to sort of craft it perfectly, and so mm. there is something about that, and it is, it is very satisfying. But Dominic, at the same time, it, this isn't necessarily just for show. This is this is commentators kind of fighting back a bit because commentators get a lot of shit and and not just on this podcast you know fairly even-handed shit but shit nonetheless and i think this is this is them demonstrating that this is a really hard job like every you know two yeah. three games a week they have to be as clued up as anybody going into this game probably even more so than like the assistant managers of the teams involved they're doing just as much research and i think this is them just sort of saying do you know what this is fucking hard it, and it is, and and you know, obviously on on Games Master, I used to commentate on the games as if they yes. were sporting events. Yeah, yeah. And I remember that my my favourite times there was two series where Jim Rosenthal yeah, joined yes, me I was as a co-commentator. It. 
And it was it was just a different level. You just realise that it's it's an incredibly hard thing to do because you have to make it entertaining and you have to impart information, mm. but not too much information because it makes it look like you're working too hard. And that's the one thing that's terrible about commentators in Canada. The Canadian commentators, they're just so desperate to give you a meaningless stat. Yeah. They just show that they don't have a real understanding of the ebb and the flow and the rhythm of the game. But to um, to have Jim next to me and just, it was just an 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 effortlessness and it's just that thing it's the hardest thing to do is to look effortless it takes a lot of work uh, I mean Eddie Izzard spoiler alert it's not really making that shit up on stage every <laughs> night okay but um, so so it, it really I was lucky enough to see that you know up, up up close with Jim who is one of the greatest commentators not just football athletics everything it's just uh, just 100%. absolutely brilliant but you're right they do get a kick in and I think it's because everybody it's one of those jobs everybody thinks that they can do and because mm. commentators aren't ex-players they feel oh you know what have you done that deserves that and one only has to listen to the um the sad uh, tsunami of fan commentaries yeah. that go on these days which are absolutely seventh level of hell <laughs> i mean they're so utterly bad and it does make you realize that these guys ah, these guys are ballerinas with words they're fantastic <laughs> nicely put i like that um that was a frankly tremendous first half to Meza Harland Dix. Your first hate, um, if that's not too strong a word, is going to take us deep into Games Master. Tell us about that. Yeah. Yeah, it's a kind of link. It flows on nicely from the Jim Rosenthal <laughs> thing is that uh, I, I'm, I, I, I hate looking back now at when footballers came on Games Master because it should have been my favourite part of the whole show because... Uh, I loved football even more than I loved video games. And I was so excited. They were the hardest type of guests to get on. They were the only ones yeah. that we ever paid. And we paid them oh, a right. lot. Okay. And wow. a lot of times they would come on and there'd be people that I was fortunate enough to have crossed paths with. Phil Babs, great example, Andy Townsend. I'd met them before. I'd had beers with them. And they were great. They were really funny, engaging, great characters. But... Every time the camera rolled, they just had the personality sucked out of them, and they reverted <laughs> to cliches. And I just think it was a, it was a, I was a, an annual disappointment. And I just felt, I felt sorry because a, I was like, oh, this bit's going to be a bit shitty on the show. Uh, but also, it's like people are going to go, oh, this is just standard crap that footballers say when they're being interviewed, which is always yeah. disappointing. And I just realised that sadly, it's not their fault. We never really see how entertaining footballers are. Uh, because the clubs tell them don't say anything yep. remotely controversial, remotely interesting. And this feeds into uh, another one of my most hated, hated things is this theory that footballers are stupid because mm -hmm. they didn't pay attention at school because they were too busy playing football. That's rubbish. Footballers yep. are every bit as smart or thick as people in any other line of work. It's just yep. that they're not yep. allowed to show anything. And you realise that, you know, when you see the, the, the Nevilles, well, Gary anyway, at least, uh, you know, when they're <laughs> ex-players and they're commentators and and you see how in much more interesting they are now. I don't think Gary Neville ever said one interesting thing when he was still a player. So mm. it's good that they get the chance to show it finally. But it was always, it was such a disappointment. You know, it, it really was. There was nothing better than, for me in the 90s, footballers, I mean, and managers were even better. Like, I mean, you know, Peter Reid. Oh, I mean, I, I randomly met Peter Reid mm. and the Sunderland team in a pub in Newcastle. 
And it was just one of the greatest nights of my life because Reedy just ripped the piss out of all of his players. It was just fantastic fire hall banter. Yeah. And that was great. And then you see him on an interview, you know, oh, no, the boy's done well. Yeah. <laughs> no, they didn't, Reedy. You were slagging the show the, the other day in the pub. Um I, I feel like it's important we played this um, this clip. Um, I, it was one of the most enjoyable things for me to edit together yesterday. This is the entire um, montage of players being introduced on Games Master all in one go. <laughs> Please welcome English Under 21 Internationals, Richard Griffiths and Michael Dubery. Please welcome Christian Daly and Saul Campbell. Please welcome Andy Cole and Casey Keller. Please welcome Casey Keller and Andy Townsend. Please welcome tonight's special guests, Andy Townsend and Vinnie Jones. Wimbledon and England striker, John Fashionu. Former Liverpool and England captain, Emlyn Hughes. Arsenal and England striker, Ian Wright. Aston Villa and England winger, Tony Daly. Please welcome Graham Lassau and Phil Babb. Our two finalists, Phil Babb and Dean Holdsworth. <laughs> Dean Holdsworth and David Kerslake. Um, Charlie, um, if we could pick out the most, if you could pick out the most nineties combination of players wow. in that list, I would have to go for Phil Babb and Dean Holdsworth. Oh, that's so hard. <laughs> Love Kerslake getting in. Kerslake getting end. in at the end is great. I mean, Dubri like twenty quid. Dubri and Rufus. <laughs> Dubri. What a pair. I mean, that's a, that's a, we were talking about future England teams back in uh, an episode a few weeks ago. I mean, I feel like Dubri and Rufus both would have been hailed as future England centre backs. But yeah, what a selection there! Yeah. Um, so yeah. Uh, so so I've looked. I've watched all of these clips, um, Dominic. I've watched all of the performances of these of these um, Premier League players on on Gamesmaster. And the one that really stood out for me is as kind of nice cross section of the whole experience, especially what you're talking about here. And it was Series Seven, I think, and it was just before France '98. And uh, you invited um, Sol Campbell and Christian Daly to come on and play Worldwide Soccer '98 <laughs> on the Sega Saturn, which is just a perfect combination of words oh on its own. God. And uh, just to, just to set the scene for people who are just too young um, to have ever witnessed this, frankly, incredible moment in TV history, um, Sol Campbell and Christian Daly, who are about to jet off to the World Cup in France, being rowed across a TV set by a scantily clad island dweller is the best way I can think to describe it, about 10 yards across this yeah. virtual lake, what well, this real lake, and uh, to be introduced to Dominic Diamond on Games Master, uh, let's, let's, just, um, let's just listen to the intro first of all. Okay, guys, now, um, obviously, both of you are looking forward to France and the World Cup. Uh, what's, what's the best and worst things that you think will be about France? So, uh, I think the best thing will be me playing, in, you know, actually playing in the uh, World Cup. And uh, I think the worst thing could happen is uh, losing in the final. Yeah. No, that won't be that, won't be that bad. <laughs> that won't be that bad at all. Uh, Christian, what about you? What are you looking forward to about France? Um, same as so, really, just being there. Uh, it's a massive thrill just to be involved in something like the World yeah. Cup. And uh, you know, hopefully we can we can play England, and hopefully we can beat them this time. Oh, it will happen! I am I am absolutely convinced. <laughs> Dominic, I just I love God. the juxtaposition of seeing two fo footballers being really awkwardly rowed across a TV studio, and then asked <laughs> fairly standard question, and then giving the blandest answers I've ever heard. Oh. 
Well, I know what you're looking forward to about France. I was hoping, you know, frogs' legs, snails, <laughs> wine. You know, I'll go to Gerard Depardieu's birthplace, <laughs> something like that. You know, the Moulin Rouge, and it really was just terrible. And so, what's really bad about that is um, Christian Daly, in particular, who was a great guy, and I used to see him at so many indie band gigs right. uh, around the place, and had great eloquent conversations with him about music and he just it wasn't I think he was worse because Saul Campbell Saul Campbell did the bland one and then Christian Daly just said exactly the same thing that Saul <laughs> Campbell out bland had him. said yeah. <laughs> and it was, and it was really this. such a shame I mean and, and obviously it's cringing now me looking back and going on about you know oh yeah I have no doubt Scotland and England will meet in that World Cup, and it was just, yeah. uh, if anything, more pain, more painful than Argentina '78 uh, was. <laughs> just horrible. I do like Sol Campbell saying the worst thing he can imagine is losing in the final. <laughs> yeah, that's setting a very, very high bar <laughs> yeah. for the worst thing that could happen to your son. Um, so, uh, so they get they get into their seats, and uh, they're about to play um, Worldwide Soccer '98 on the Sega Saturn. Um, Christian yeah. Daly, Scotland, storming to a three-one victory over Sol Campbell's England. Meanwhile, Jim Rosenthal commentating with you over the game, and then you're interviewing them afterwards, yep. and it's literally like a post-match interview. And Sol Campbell sounds <laughs> genuinely annoyed that he lost this game. Fair play to him. But yes, not was it was a fantastic move for you, goal, wasn't it, actually, Sol? Yeah, it was right in the corner, but uh, you know the defensive work wasn't too uh, too good. You know, basic errors. Now, Christian, a fantastic performance there. Uh, can you see that happening if the two teams met in the World Cup? Um, I think it's a distinct possibility, um, especially if we adopt the same uh, Brazilian style of football yeah. as we showed there, and, and look, that's, that's the way we can play. Uh, basic errors there, Charlie, from Sal Campbell, is frankly delicious piece of deadpan TV. Yeah, as you say, I mean, he does, he does seem actually quite annoyed and, and fair, fair play. That's, you know, a genuine bit of, uh, of emotion that you've extracted yeah. from him there. And then, uh, yeah, and then Dominic, didn't he got them rowed back across um, the sea in yeah. the studio uh, just yeah, to complete that was- the utterly surreal situation? That's right, with Christian Daly having the Games Master Golden Joystick, which was the closest thing any Scottish player got to anything remotely silverware in that World Cup. That's sure. on his that was, Wikipedia that was page, almost... honours for Christian Daly. <laughs> yes, that, that was almost certainly the highlight of Christian Daly's footballing year, oh without a doubt. So you've you've mentioned, um, I mean, I, I speed read your autobiography um this morning, as I said, and um, it's peppered with, quite frankly, genuinely brilliant encounters with Premier League footballers. Um, I'm going to share a couple because uh, um, this perhaps sums up the whole experience the most. You enjoyed a night out with um, with Liverpool's Spice Boys, uh, presumably towards the end of the 1990s. Uh, this is what you had to say. But if you had been yeah. able to overhear the conversations that night, you'd have been very disappointed. Mostly it was me, Babsy, Collie Moore and David James talking about video games. We had ended up in the VIP room in Cream. Bloody hell. And we all had a bit too much to drink. I went round all the players there and got them to sign a bit of paper. I said it was for a mate of mine who was a big Liverpool fan, but in reality it was folded in half. On the bottom half were the signatures of Bab, McManaman, Redknapp, James and Collymore. On the top half, unbeknown to them, I had written, We, the undersigned, hereby agreed to sign for Celtic FC this year for £20 each. <laughs> That's right, yes. <laughs> That was that was, Legally that was binding? such a brilliant night. 
I don't know Scots law, perhaps. <laughs> um, and it's interesting because because that that came about through through Babsy, and, and so yeah, so he was the one that uh, that invited me up, and it really was. It was just like boys' own adventure day, where um, saw the game and then went uh, to the players' bar afterwards. Went touched the famous this is Anfield sign and Neil Ruddock pouring pints in the players bar which is another quintessentially <laughs> 90s thing Jesus and then Christ. to go out with those guys to go out with those guys in Liverpool at that time was just uh, I mean it was the Rat Pack it was you know it was, it yeah. was Sammy Davis Jr and Sinatra and, and Dean Martin <laughs> and it was every door held open for them and it was absolutely wonderful and they were great guys but they were I mean absolutely obsessed with video games well David James of course you know mm. famously destroyed yeah. his English his, his England career because being well, addicted it, to Tomb Raider it would be things. remiss of us not to, not to pick up on this point because as you, as you say David James's form was direct or his bad Liverpool form was directly attributed to him staying up too late and playing Tomb Raider. Charlie, we we are we are in the midst, we are in the company of a man who is directly responsible for the for the failing form of a Premier League footballer. What do you have to say for yourself? Well, I thought if it was the only way that I could help the Scottish football team out, it was I was certainly destroyed England a lot more than any of the Scottish team did in the nineties. So that was it. I, I only I only got as far as David James. If maybe if Games Master had run for longer, I would have gone through the full eleven potentially. Uh, I want you to tell us about your your second um, uh, irritation about football, shall we say? Yeah, it's uh, f- uh, footballers who do overly complex sock wear. Uh, <laughs> I um, I, I mean, I. I I, I, I like a normal sock, okay? That's my yes. preferred thing. I, I understand uh, rolled down, but the two things, the rolled up over the knees and this mm-hmm. strange three-quarter length thing that has come about uh, specifically with the like, with Ollie McBurney basically was the one that uh, that kind of yeah. really got me angry. I, and I don't, I don't have a problem with footballers making an effort to be individual. You know, sweatbands, hairbands, wristbands, you know, knock yourself out. We all like to accessorise. Shirt tucked in or untucked. <laughs> Fair enough. Full length Under Armour long sleeve thing <laughs> under a short sleeved shirt. That's fashionable and practical, Okay. The, the boots thing, it took me a while to come round to ones that were other than black. But then, yep. you know, I, I actually think that modern football boot design is, is a thing of beauty now. The colours, it's like right. as a child, okay. I dreamed of seeing the Sistine Chapel ceiling. Now footballers wear it on their feet. and <laughs> yes, uh, So I think that's okay. But socks are, are A, the least interesting clothing item full stop. And they're the least yes. interesting part of a footballer's uniform. Nobody ever got excited at the new season's socks <laughs> being leaked <laughs> on the internet. It's very know? true. And so, so I think the man who thinks too much about socks is the man who's thinking too hard, full stop. Mm. And, you know, you, as we say in Scotland, it means you're a bit up yourself. Yeah. And it's interesting that the most obvious culprit for me and legions of Scottish fans in recent years is the worst Scottish footballer of recent mm. years, the most overpriced Scottish footballer in the history of the Premiership, Ollie McBurney. A man so <laughs> overpriced and overrated, Robert Fleck can finally relax <laughs> and go, oh, thank goodness, you know. And I know he's not the only one. I know Jack Grealish does the same. He has the little kind of three-quarter length thing, but that's because he is genuinely superstitious, mm. right? I, I He's worn them at length since he was a kid. He wears kid-sized shin pads. And also, he's a decent footballer. 
you know, Ollie McBurney is like that first footballer who wore white boots and just stands out mm-hmm. a mile. And, you know, the, some footballers can carry that off. Uh, um, Michel Platini, he wore socks, but, but they were rolled down. Yeah. That generation, you know, him and Rui Costa mm. and Totti, it was more of like a sock that had naturally fallen yes, down, yes. that they didn't have time to pull back <laughs> up because they were possessed <laughs> and consumed by the game and let the socks fall where they fall. Yes. But Bernie's are so exquisitely crafted. <laughs> They're like as sculpted as this ridiculous indie tramp beard <laughs> and his hair and it's all just so studied mm. you know uh, and he is not a level of player that should be making himself stand out if I was as bad as Ollie McBurney I'd be hiding I really would I wouldn't want the camera on me at all uh, Charlie I mean there are so many avenues a surprising number of avenues um, we could go down related to football socks but um, but it the, the next question it begs is what the hell has happened to shin pads because they are so small now it's it's absolutely incredible yeah i mean i think back to my first pair of shin pads were enormous i mean they were Mm. called shin guards i think oh yeah they they came with like full ankle support and they actually made playing football quite hard and Mm. i have to say i'm a big fan of uh i admit i wear those things that go underneath the shin pads and just keep them up i remember because I move. They used to used to have to have the kind of sticky ones because otherwise they'd move around. Yeah. But they they were a bit uncomfortable. So I like that you can have the ones with nothing else on them, but then the the sort of tape underneath keeps yeah. them up. Uh, so the, the evolution has been massive. But also I want to say Dominic um, Emil Smith Rowe, aka the Croydon De Bruyne, as we know, he <laughs> recently talked about this and said he does this. He kind of does. It, it looks like a kind of homage to Grealish. He does it because it makes it feel for him like the shackles are off. Um, that's how he views having them up upright. So letting it, letting them down. Mm. That was sort of his uh, his justification. And he so he was asked about. Well, it. So th- this is not you are not the only person with this preoccupation. Yes. If if only the shackles came off Ollie McBurney. <laughs> Can you? Because I think he seems to have play with the kind of shackles that were made popular during the Spanish Inquisition. <laughs> He's that slow and unwieldy. <laughs> um, but I also I also think it's equally bad. That is your third hate Ollie McBurney, by the way? Can we just get that out of the way? <laughs> yeah, is it <laughs> not my favourite player? <laughs> I, I just think that the over-the-knee sock is equally ridiculous. That's absolutely pointless because uh, any sock... Uh, yeah, any sock that comes over the knee ceases to be a sock, it becomes a stocking. Yes, and if yes. you want to see a stocking, then go and watch Catherine Zeta-Jones uh, in Chicago. Yes. The musical, <laughs> you know, it's just it becomes. I, I'm reminded of that great. I think it was. Um, I think it was Roland Barthes or Baudrillard. It was one that says, mm. and it stuck with me from from university. That his theory of the erotic that it's the glimpse of flesh betwixt the top of the stocking and the bottom of the skirt. And for some reason, whenever I see a footballer do that, I'm reminded of the theory of the erotic. And I don't think it's something I want to be distracted by when I'm watching football. <laughs> <You know? laughs> Oh God! If 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 we could just have one week of this podcast where we don't mention Roland Barthes' theory of the erotic, that would really be great. Um, but I mean, okay. So 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 you've talked about kind of studied, sort of overcomplicated sock usage. What about kind of sock vandalism? Where do you stand on sort of players cutting holes in the back of their socks to to let their calves breathe a bit more, or even worse, players just cutting the foot of the sock off completely and just wearing them as kind of sort of floating 
um, socks, really, and then letting them wear whatever they want on their foot. It's all very strange now. Well, I think that shows a distinct lack of respect to yes. the sock tailor. Um, and I think that's, you know, <laughs> that, that almost goes the, goes the other way. I think that they're actually saying, you know, you're just someone who makes socks. I'm not going to respect your work. You know, it's not like it's an Armani jacket. So, yes, yeah, so, no, I think that's that's almost... Um, that yeah no that's that's horrific that's that's criminal. No, fair I enough. Mean. I quite agree. I mean, I'm sure there's there's some witchcraft medicine reason. Like, you know, I went to the physio the other day and he was doing that thing with the little rubber things that you put on it now, like the swimmers have. Oh, I right. think that's all part and parcel of that. I don't really believe any of that stuff. I think that's just nonsense. <laughs> Sounds like something you would have had done to you in the 90s. I'm convinced of that. Um, yeah, quite possibly in cream. Yeah. Yes, yes. Your your third and final um, choice for your hates of football, um, perhaps um, is, is really nicely chosen because if anything, um, the second half of Mesut Holland Dix is all about cheap shots and tap-ins. And this perhaps feel like the cheapest shot of all. Um, tell me about it. Yeah, it's a, a polite Canadian football fans or soccer fans as they call themselves Mm. over here so I I live in Canada I moved here about 12 years ago because I didn't want my children to grow up in a country that has hate as a national sport yes Uh, and so uh, I moved here because Canada was lovely and it's it's a lovely gently friendly liberal country it's bursting with love you can go on the radio and say what type of mass you went to on a Sunday and be completely safe, for example. <laughs> it really is not like Glasgow. Um, yeah. but And so that's the best thing about Canada, except where football is concerned, because I am one of those throwbacks that firmly believes football needs a bit of hate. Yeah. And hate with a small H. I remember reading as a kid uh, Desmond Morris's book, The Football Tribe, The Soccer Tribe, mm-hmm. I think he called it. Mm-hmm. And I was obsessed with that book. And I loved it because it is tribal. We don't go out and hunt or gather now. We don't war against the next community and return with spoils. Football takes that place and it channels that violence and aggression out of society. And we, we leave it, you know, we leave it in the stands. And for me, that, that that violently aggressive side of football fan is what separates it from every other sport. And I've been lucky enough to see pretty much every sport at a high level in most places in the world. And mm. there's nothing Nothing compares to that seething cauldron of aggression of football fans. You you, you take a sport that's more inherently violent on the field, rugby union, for example, and you put two opposing fans together in the same stadium during the Six Nations, you don't have a fight, you have a choir. You know, it's just so um, (laughs) Canadian football fans, when, when, when they go and watch it, and I've, I've followed two teams over here. Uh, Toronto FC, I've followed for years. And out here in Calgary, Calgary Cavalry FC, I'm wearing my tracky top from them today. And okay. when they try when they try to noise up the opposition, it is so pathetic, it makes <laughs> Norwich City fans look like Millwall. Why Norwich? I'll, I'll never forget Why are you picking going- on Norwich? <laughs> oh, no, Norwich are just the most ridiculously friendly fans in the world. I went to no, a game there uh, in the nineties, and uh, it was um, the wonderful Roger Milford was uh, was oh, refereeing. Yeah. And I, I'm at the, I'm at the home end, and he, you know, a couple of refereeing decisions were not his best. They they went against the home team, and I'm there with I guess what passed as the Norwich ultras uh, back then, and the worst form of abuse <laughs> was shouted at Roger Milford. This guy next to me, go back to Bristol, Mister Mil. <laughs> <laughs> that was it. That was it. 
<laughs> as violent that, as it got. That sounds that sounds like what um the the guy who got kung fu kicked by Eric Cantona allegedly said to him before he before he got kept. <laughs> he was like um um. It, off, off, off! It's an early bath for you, Mr. Cantona. Um, so maybe, <laughs> that's maybe right. if, yeah, that's yeah, right. If, if he'd been at Norwich, maybe but, that actually would exactly how it turned out. But Canadian fans are are, are like yeah. that, um, and um, it's such a hilarious contrast to the UK expats who make up the vast majority of the home support for Toronto FC, Calgary Cavalry. And that's what makes... Actually, going to see football in Canada is great because of all the British expats. And they make... You know, yeah. you know we have pyro and everything like that. And it's and it's great. The, the problem is, is that all they say, Canadian football fans, especially in the ultras end is you suck so, that's it that's the sum total you everybody sucks so you, I've, I've been at games there was one game in particular right which uh, was a calgary cavalry game last season and um this one guy go goalie you suck and he goalie doesn't pay attention something else happens goalie you suck the whole like about 80 minutes and finally there's an english guy who's had enough <laughs> And they go, goalie, you suck. And the English guy goes, he means you're a fucking cunt. (laughs) (laughs) And then he turned round. And then I thought, that's how you do it. Apologies uh, for my language. (laughs) I could not agree with you more. This is actually American rather than Canadian. But I remember going to Yankees Red Sox and being warned before, like, this is the most hostile rivalry in all of American sport. And was kind of curious. (laughs) I I was like, okay, great. I'm reading forward to this. Like you, I love the tribal element. And it was the most tame thing. And literally the only chant there was that I heard was Yankees suck, sort of whispered (laughs) by a few people. I was like, is that it? Like it was, it was so underwhelming. I couldn't believe it. It's, it's such, it's such a weird kind of, um, I I don't know how to describe it. Kind of a weird kind of blind spot in North American culture where it's, you can be too rude um, despite you know being you know being thoroughly excessive in almost any other discipline, you simply can be too rude to the point where British people kind of don't get it. But in an incredible coincidence, um, Dominic, while I was researching this aspect of this podcast, um, I was trying to think of an. Ex- I was desperately trying to think of an example because I knew I had one in my head of North American soccer fans being um, um, sort of almost comically inoffensive. And I, I suddenly realised what it was, and I googled it. I googled it, and brilliantly, it is actually Toronto FC fans. This is from 2007, <laughs> before a game against DC United, and frankly, it is a masterpiece of what you were talking about. Brilliant. Not one Canadian accent there at all. It's great. It's all English. I just. I, I love they're singing that pre-game, completely like not in response to a decision that's been made or anything. Preemptively just, calling they, the referee they, wanker. Key question then: Have you ever driven to a game in Canada? Have you ever have you ever parked your car near a stadium and a Canadian kid has threatened to burn your car down? <laughs> no, no, I haven't. The uh, the surroundings of uh, of matches in Toronto uh, are uh, are are very nice and polite. We, you don't really put, you don't take your car there if you if you don't have to. You take a public transport. What's interesting about uh, Calgary is that they play at the uh, the show jumping arena. 
here okay. uh, as a, as a new, it was a new the CPL the Canadian uh, uh, Premier League was just a new thing two seasons ago so they basically took existing structures and we have a famous uh, show jumping ground and as a result it is a beautiful stadium to go and see it because actually there's only there's like one kind of covered stand and then one uncovered stand and the other two sides are basically grassy banks mm. so you go there on a summer's evening and it's like being a kind of village it's like a it's like a it's a village cricket ground <laughs> in many ways and it's it's a really beautiful atmosphere and then in contrast you have the english fans <laughs> you fucking <laughs> so it's a it's really a it's cultural a wonderful, melting wonderful experience that it really is you know and, and i have to i have to say that they have a guy and they, and they really do play football there's a guy um the manager is a guy called tommy wheldon jr mm. whose dad played for everton back oh, right. in the day and he is a he is a Brilliant manager, and I, I tell you, I'm going to mark him out as a name to watch in the future. He, he has taken a bunch of players, plays very much nice short pass and possession football. He's a great guy. He gets it, and uh, he will he will rise up the ranks of uh, of English managers definitely. Speaking of just getting it, I don't think I'm pretty sure you are now firmly in the top three guests who just got. Mesut Harland Dicks, an incredible <laughs> selection of things. That, uh, just, just a perfect, nice little variety, a little selection box. Um, that Just absolutely fantastic. Now, on to business, though. It's 30 years yes. since Games Master. What's happening? It is... Oh my goodness! So we brought out a book to commemorate that uh, called uh, "Games Master: The Oral History," mm. which I'm a, a title I'm very proud yes. of for so many reasons. <laughs> um, and um, and it really is. Uh, it's we've been working really hard on it for about six it months. It looks beautiful. We got in touch with pretty much. Yeah, it's it's one of these posh books, yeah. um, and uh, so it's like uh, this com- this company uh, read only memory. We've done a lot of posh hardback, metallic foil printed, multi page stock things in the past. They're doing it, and we got in touch with everybody who worked on the show. Uh, producers, directors, researchers, contestants, celebrities, astronomers, Channel Four commissioning editors. Sol Campbell. Astro- well, unfortunately, we're, we're, yeah, we were a little bit too late to get the astronomer, <laughs> but he has featured what what he said in the past, um, and it's them telling their story. And as a result, um, we we kind of have the full story, not just of the show, but the nineties. So it's me threading my way through them, linking them all, the story of the show from beginning to end, including like you know the the, the, the graphics guys talking about how they came up with the look and the music guys and everything and also the story of of me a, a, a guy who went from a uh, working class background sharing a bedroom with his brother in his mum's house to being the face of one of the hottest new tv shows highlighting this brand new massive culture mm. and was catapulted to it literally the classic overnight yeah. success and how i dealt with or in most cases failed to deal with uh, the excesses that that brought on uh, because of the 90s. Um, we're very lucky that uh, um, Robbie Williams <laughs> yes. has written the foreword for the This was an unexpected was touch, a, a forward by Robbie Williams, a golden joystick winner, of course. Oh, that's right, yeah. And uh, and so, again, that came about really randomly. We, we, we thought, right, we want someone who was on the show, who was big in the 90s, synonymous with the David 90s. David Kerslake's not available, presumably. <laughs> <laughs> David Kerslake was on holiday. Um, so it basically came down, it came down to Robbie, uh, uh, Robbie and uh, Zoe oh, Ball. Yeah. So I, I, sent, I just sent a random message to Robbie Williams' agent um, so oh, I don't know if you remember me, Robbie, because we crossed paths a couple of times and there's some great stories in the book about that as well. And uh, and so a couple of days later, I get a random email in my inbox in Calgary, north of the wall, and uh, and it's from Rob W. <laughs> and I open it up 
And not only has he written the most wonderfully exuberant foreword about how much the show meant to him, but he's saying, you know, well done for surviving the 90s, Dominic. I know we both kicked the arse out of it. Uh, I, 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 he said, I, I've given all that stuff up now and I'm into gardening. Mm. Now, I love gardening. So the rest of the week was me swapping oh gardening tips via email with, with oh, Robbie Williams, which was a, just a wonderful, wonderful turn of, of events. So, uh, so yeah, it's a real labour of love. All the behind the scenes stuff, all the stories and... Uh, and we put it on Kickstarter, um, and we, uh, yeah, we, we, I think it's, it became one of the most successful Kickstarter-funded books ever. We got the funding yeah, on day one, so now we're releasing. Yeah, we did. So now we're releasing all kinds of great little tier rewards uh, for the next. Uh, I think it's until the twenty-second of April that it runs for. So uh, there's lots of nice little little things that I will do. Um, that makes it sound a bit dodgy, but but you you know how Kickstarter works. There's lots of Dominic Diamond flavored experiential rewards that are on offer. Dominic Diamond will if you if you pledge us at fifteen hundred quid, Dominic Diamond will take you to the nearest race course and, and put ten pounds on the most rudely named horse. I'm 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 in. Yeah. I'm in. Well, that that's actually it's um it, that's uh, the series two location, which is probably yeah, the most yeah, yeah. iconic one, the oil rig, and that's uh, now the Kempton Pumping Museum. Another great title. <laughs> nice. And so yeah, the plan is is that I I will meet you outside of that. Um, we will smoke a cigarette together uh, to basically because that's what we used to do when we weren't filming um, and you don't have to smoke I'll smoke yep. too and uh, and then I'll take you to the pub and then we'll go to Kempton uh, races if they're on that day and yeah I'll put 10, 10 pound on the rudest named horse that day it'll just basically be a fun day out with me so there's lots of things like that if they want to sounds good I'm raiding the savings great. account already um, yeah good luck with it it's, <laughs> it, it, it looks absolutely incredible it's, it's how much to throw in Babsy for that as well <laughs> oh <laughs> I don't even know what Babsy does these days. Does he, does he commentate? Does he? I, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm not sure. Half suspect he's probably on US TV as opposed. I was going to say I can yeah. very much picture him in that. Yeah, yeah totally. We, we, well, well, listen, we'll try and get Kersley yeah, yeah. as a backup. <laughs> All the lads as a backup. That's that's a thirty quid option, isn't it, Kersley? Anyway, um, <laughs> Dominic Diamond, you have been an absolute sensation. Thank you so much, and not just because you were Scottish. We did need one, but um, I'm glad it was you. <laughs> Uh, you've you've taken me back and uh, what yeah a lovely micro analysis of the state of modern football as well thank you so much thank you Adam thank you Charlie it's been great chatting to you guys cheers and we'll see everybody else next week and that as they say Charlie is that yes it works The Athletic <laughs>